language, of course, operates from a set of really explicit syntactical and grammatical rules. And, and actually, music does, too. It operates from a very uh, strict and explicit set of syntactical and, and grammatical rules. Uh, but those rules are not the same ones, because music is not the same thing as language. But they're both rules that deal with patterns and, and sequences and how to make sense of them and how to process them. And one of the points I, I tried to make is that when you learn music and you learn language, you're also uh, teaching your mind how to learn processes, how to make sense of uh, syntactical rules and things like that. And that's a, that's a primary function of the human mind. To, to turn those sorts of, of, of symbolic uh, information into knowledge and, and into learning. And if you learn, therefore, both music and language, then you're not only uh, learning both music and language, which are definitely good things in their own right, but you're also learning, uh, you're teaching the mind at a, at a more fundamental level, perhaps, how to, uh, how to deal with patterns and sequences and how to make sense out of it. And mathematics operates from its own set of uh, syntactical rules, too, which are a lot closer to language than the, the musical rules would be. But they're not the same as language, by any means. Uh, so now you have three sets of syntactical rules that you're learning. And I would propose that those three sets of learnings are mutually uh, reinforcing and complementary. And that if you exclude one, then you're hurting the ability to learn the other two. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast gives you the edge to live a more informed life. We discuss more than just St. Louis as we connect the Gateway City to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. There has been a lot of studies and research done on students who are involved in music and how they do academically, mm -hmm. how well they do academically. There has never been a study as it relates to the achievement in music related to the achievement in reading and mathematics. And our guest today, Martin Burgey, who's Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, who's Professor of Music Education and Music Therapy at the University of Kansas, is going to talk to us about that. Prior to his appointment at KU, he spent 20 years as a faculty member in music education at the University of Missouri-Columbia. Prior to that, he taught middle school and high school band in St. Joseph. He has served on the editorial committees of the Journal of Research and Music Education, the Bulletin of the Council for Research and Music Education, and currently he chairs the Executive Committee of the Music Education Research Council, the governing body of the Music Educator National Conference Society for Research in Music Education. Dr. Martin Burgi, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Hi, Arnold. Glad to be with you. Now, I'm going to call him Martin because he and I go way mm. back. We were classmates together at KU. Right. So I'm going to call him Martin and not Dr. Burgi. No, don't, don't call me Dr. Burgi, please. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend named Martin, and we called him Marty. I don't know if, if you have a short name other than 
Doc or <laughs> Martin? <laughs> Marty is actually my name, but most people call me Martin, and I don't correct them. There you go. Okay. So I'll let Mark call you Marty, and I'll call you Martin, because that, that's how I that referred w- to you when we were in school. That way we'll know who's talking to you. So, Martin, this is a very interesting study, and as I've read this, uh, it really fills a gap in the research in music education and also in reading and mathematic education as far as the relationship. You know, my first question is, what was the reason for the study? Well, there are two, one academic and, and one practical. The practical reason is that grant money was made available uh, through the National Association of Music Merchants, and I felt at the time that, that I was one of the individuals who might be able to answer uh, some of the more complex questions that uh, NAM was trying to ask. Um, the second thing is this business of music and reading and math being all related to one another, that's been around for a long time, and it seems to have uh, grown legs. It, it seems to be something that hangs in people's minds. And from the relationship, it's, it's uh, easy, I think, to start to think in terms of cause and effect. If you study music, then uh, you will be better, per se, at, uh, at reading and math. And that, that's always been, uh, to one degree or another, suspect with me. I, 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 I've always assumed that the relationship was, was probably so-called spurious, meaning that there are other things that are actually controlling it, uh, things like where you go to school, where you live, uh, what your ethnicity is, what your parents' education level is, how much money your family makes, and, and a whole bunch of other things. So I assume that if I threw all those variables into an equation, that the variables themselves, the demographics, would, would actually explain the relationship. And the, the pure relationship between math and reading and music would, would then essentially drop to zero. And much to my surprise, that's not what happened at all. Well, let's Let's get into your sample group and how you went about finding that sample group, because I think it's important that you you did have a broad section of uh, students who participated in this, and this was in grades, uh, If I correct me if I'm wrong, four through eight, is that correct? That's correct. And so go ahead and explain your sample group. I started out by taking a, a map of the state of Missouri, uh, dividing it out by school districts, and then randomly choosing school districts and then attempting to randomly choose uh, schools within those school districts. And, and that went absolutely nowhere. I, I suspect that it was going to, and, and it did. Um, I, I would send a note cold to, to these, uh, these, these school administrators. And, Arnold, I'm sure you can understand that, that they get crank notes like that all the time. Right. And I'm sure that it was just, it was just dismissed out of hand. So that didn't work. Uh, therefore, what, what ended up happening, happening is I didn't have a, um, a sample that was statistically representative, but I still ended up with a pretty large sample. Um, at the time, I was, a, uh, I was on the faculty at MU, and, and MU had a, um, a, a partnership for educational renewal, it was called. It was a partnership between school districts, certain school districts, and MU. And a lot of those superintendents, by virtue of that relationship, knew me. 
and I knew them. So I went to them and I said, can I use your school districts and, and, and schools and students within your district uh, if there's some money involved, which there was. And uh, they were quite agreeable, and they, they helped to set that up. So the good news is that I ended up with a lot of Missouri uh, students, over a 1,000. But the bad news, if it is bad news, is that they're not completely representative of Missouri as a whole or the nation as a whole. But still, there there were quite a few of them. And you do mention that in the study, that that's kind of a little caveat to the the randomization of that. But you had students from urban and suburban and um, rural areas, and there was one metropolitan areas was, was another area. Those were the areas, correct? It was a pretty nice mix. It, it wasn't statistically entirely statistical, uh, statistically representative, but it was a pretty good mix. I, I was pretty happy with, with, with who I came up with. So you go to the administrators, and uh, they've selected some schools, and you are beginning to administer what? How are, how are you going about to make this comparison and to find out what this comparison is all about? The, the rub is I needed to test these students for music achievement, and that's not normally done. Uh, music programs don't normally give students norm tests in music achievement. Right. Uh, they're, they're more participatory and process-oriented in nature. So I asked the schools, uh, the incentive being $2,000 per school, because that was written into the grant. I asked the schools if I or uh, some, uh, some employees of the grant could come in and give the students that were selected a music achievement test. And that's actually what we did. We, we got 50 minutes per school, per student, to give, to give a music achievement test. And was that an auditory test? Is it a written test or kind of a combination of both? It's a combination of both, actually. Most of it's auditory, but there's also a music reading component in the test. Now, you gave that test, and you got results from that. And I believe it's the uh, MAT-1 and the MAT-2, the Music Achievement Test. There there were four sections of that, but you only gave two. And then you made the comparison with what? With uh, as as I'm sure you're well aware, Arnold, uh, there's an MAP, a Missouri Assessment pro- uh, Profile that uh, program, excuse me, that that requires that that every Missouri student be tested in math and reading on a regular basis. And of course, the school districts had that information, and uh, that information was provided to me uh, for the students that participated in the uh, in the music achievement testing. So you're making the map comparison in uh, English language arts and mathematics to the music achievement tests, and you had to go through a lot of statistical analysis and formulas and et cetera like that. So what were some of the initial results that you got? And then I want to discuss kind of as you move through your uh, analysis, what kind of things popped up? Well, for... First, I feel like I need to apologize for the complexity of the, of the statistical analysis, but um, I, I set myself out to do something that was pretty complex, and unfortunately, I needed a, a method of analysis that was complex, and then it, it reported out complex, too. But um, there, there are things that, about it that are not particularly hard to absorb or, or to understand, um, so, some of which I expected and, and several of which I, I did not expect. Uh, 
Um, first, it, uh, the students that were that were tested, they were tested within a particular class, and that class is nested within a particular school, and of course that school is nested within a particular school district, and on up the nesting can go. So the first thing I needed to do is I needed to account for the nesting, uh, where the variability actually came from. My assumption was that some variability would come from the students, but but other uh, other sources of variability might be the the classroom itself or the school or the school district. And much to my surprise, the the classroom and the school had very little influence on this uh, on, on the variability in this study. That is interesting. And district had some influence, but not very much. But almost all the uh, the variability was actually located at the student level. That was one surprise. What do you make of that? I don't know. Um, maybe I did it wrong. Um, I, uh, the assumption is that, uh, among all of us, that that classrooms and schools and school districts have a profound effect on, on, on student learning and, and, and it, in its various manifestations. And I think that that's true. Uh, they do. But, but somehow, and, and for whatever reason, it didn't come out that way in this particular design. Um, they 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 added very little uh, explanation to to the results. District did a little bit, but classroom and school no. They they had very little influence on the outcomes. Was the district one Martin based upon their location, or was there a was there a factor that was kind of indicative of why the district one played a more major role than classroom and or building? I'm having to speculate here because I don't actually know, but I speculate that the reason the districts have an, have an influence is because the districts are closest to a community-level description or variable of some kind. And I think it does make a difference what community uh, a child grows up in. And I think districts are most representative of those uh, of those communities as opposed to, to schools, which uh, are, I mean, many schools are located within the same community. So would that speak to, like, um, maybe having different kinds of musical groups come in or the value that's placed on music within the community, how community members participate in musical kinds of activities or all of the above or some that I may not even mentioned? Uh, I would speculate that it's even broader than that. It's it's how a community approaches its schools, uh, the extent to which it's it's able to fund them adequately, the the extent to which it values its schools, the the extent to which it expects uh, young people who are in schools to to learn and to value learning, and of course that that's reflected in a lot of things, including its music programs. Now let's let's get into now the individual student and the linkages you found, how how that really manifests itself in reading and mathematics, and whether there were any differences between grade levels. The grade level um, the grade level had to be put in there as a variable, but I didn't want it to be the the, the reason that it was in there was because. Uh, the MAT does not control for grade level the same way a standardized test does. A, uh, a standardized test, uh, by definition, is designed to be taken 
uh, by, say, fourth graders. And then another standardized test at a different level is designed to be taken by, by fifth graders. There were no effects, as there shouldn't have been, uh, there were no grade-level effects on the math and the reading uh, exams uh, because they've been calibrated to control for that. The MAT is not. So there were indeed grade-level effects, but, but that's an artifact of the MAT. It, it has no meaning in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, practically speaking, uh, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders were not different in any way in this model although grade level did, did account for a fair amount of variability. That's because of the way the MAT is set up. So even though grade level looks like a strong effect, uh, what I needed to do was control for it and then get out, just get it out of the way. The, the more crucial variables were uh, so-called urbanistic, uh, or where the students actually reside, their biological sex, uh, male or female, their ethnicity, uh, the level of education in the family, um, whether or not uh, the students uh, participate in a free or reduced lo- uh, price lunch program. And uh, that's basically it for the, the student level. Um, there, there might be others, but they're escaping my, my memory at the moment. But those are really the crucial variables. And th- those are the critical var- variables that we deal with as educators right. uh, across the board all the time. Right. Right. Exactly. My assumption was that those variables would completely wipe out the, once they're accounted for, they're controlled for, that, that they would completely wipe out the relationship between academic areas, between academic achievement. And, and you were truly surprised that they did not. But they did. They accounted for all kinds of variability, um, as, as they were expected to. But the relationship remained really strong, very strong, uh, between the academic achievement areas themselves, math, reading, and, and music. The academic achievement was not explained by those variables, not, not in its entirety, even though I assumed that it would be. Right. What do you gather that this relationship is established between music achievement and reading and mathematics achievement? Well, I, of course, I don't. Actually, no, but because I, it was a, it was a finding in one of my own studies. I, I, I'm, I'm then obligated to to offer up some reasonable speculations, and and I think what I did say in the article is more than than speculation. Um, I think the people who, and and you know there are a lot of them. The, the people who are sincere about schooling and and really want schooling to work for students. I would say they fall into two general uh, ways of thinking about it. Um, one, I think, is more correct than the other. I, I think most people see learning as being uh, mostly modular. You learn quadratic equations in second hour, and then in third hour you're learning about the administration of Thomas Jefferson, say, and I think most people would, would say, if, if you were to ask them the question, they would say that, that those, two, uh, those two subject areas, those two modes of learning, are not really connected to one another in a fundamental sense. Uh, therefore, learning is, is modular. And then there's another camp, uh, of which I'm a member, who says that uh, those modes of learning are very uh, strongly connected. 
but they're connected at levels that are not immediately apparent. Um, they're, they're connected at, at the level of so-called domain general learning. And that's what I think is really happening here. Uh, this is an expression of domain general learning. Uh, that is, there are processes of learning that are absolutely critical if, if, if children, if humans are to learn, but they're, they're, uh, they're latent, they're below the surface of, of subject matter, even though they're just as, um, uh, just as, if not more important, than subject matter learning. Um, I'm not sure that that made the slightest bit of sense, and, and I'm sorry. No, no, that, that, that made a lot of sense. We're wondering why no one's ever done this before, some of the research and uh, things that you've done. It's just amazing. Uh, some of it's because it's just really hard to, to get enough people. Uh, I, I couldn't have done it without uh, the, the grant I got from them, uh, which ended up being almost $100,000. If you don't have that kind of funding behind you, you're just not going to be able to do a study like this. Yeah, this study that Martin is talking about is multi-level models of the relationship between music achievement and reading and math achievement, and it was published in the Journal of Research in Music Education uh, recently. He co-authored this with Kevin Weingarten. And what role did Kevin play in this, Martin? Well, Kevin was a great co-author for this study because um, when he was at KU taking classes, uh, he took classes in um, uh, in neuropsychology, and uh, he uh, he was introduced to things in those classes that were really uh, crucial to the study. Things that I had no clue about. I'm sorry to say. So a lot of the information uh, and, and a lot of the references in the discussion section are are actually his, and and he wrote a fair amount of that. So I'm I'm really grateful to him, and I don't know what I've done. I I don't know how I would have interpreted the study or come up with an interpretation of the study without him. Currently, he's at the University of Washington as a as a visiting professor of music ed. We have you know in the education world have always kind of known a difference or a, not a difference but a similarity with the ability to distinguish pitches and reading and i.e. your brain will substitute some things because it wants to fill some gaps in, and uh, there is a lot of neuroscience out there. And I kind of wanted to talk about that, and I'm glad that you mentioned that, the uh, neuropsychology uh, in your discussion section, because I want to read a couple quotes that you had here. Basic auditory skills have been shown to mediate music training and reading ability. And then you also have a, a quote in here that, says that syntactic integration resource hypothesis, which posits that we use similar cognitive mechanisms when processing both musical and linguistic sequences. So the role of neuroscience and what is happening in the brain, and you kind of get into this in in the discussion section, where which portion of the brain utilizes and, and interprets reading and deals with reading instruction and which portion of the brain deals with musical instruction and that ability. Discuss a little bit about kind of what you found or how that's kind of opening some doors, as you previously mentioned, for you. Well, I'm happy to, but, but I need to, to say up front that I'm a music teacher. I, I'm a band director, so... It's possible for me to be out of my water here pretty quickly with, with some of this stuff. And uh, we'll keep you in the I'm, pool. I'm yeah. doing the best I can. <laughs> uh, so so please keep that in mind. 
language, of course, operates from a set of really explicit syntactical and grammatical rules. And, and actually, music does, too. It operates from a very uh, strict and explicit set of syntact- uh, syntactical and, and grammatical rules. Uh, but those rules are not the same ones, because music is not the same thing as language. Uh, the the uh, processes that the language uses are uh, use are, are they're they're specific to language, and the processes used in music are specific to music. But they're both rules that deal with patterns and and sequences and how to make sense of them and how to process them. And, and one of the points I, I tried to make is that when you learn music and you learn language, you're also uh, teaching your mind how to learn processes, how to make sense of uh, syntactical rules and things like that. And that's a that's a primary function of the human mind to to turn those sorts of of, of symbolic uh, information into knowledge and and into learning and. If you learn, therefore, both music and language, then you're not only uh, learning both music and language, which are definitely good things in their own right, but you're also learning, uh, you're teaching the mind at a, at a more fundamental level, perhaps, how to, uh, how to deal with patterns and sequences and how to make sense out of them. Which would then, to me, really translate to mathematical uh, equations and things like that, being able to understand the parts and how they fit together. Exactly, I and mean, mathematics operates from its own set of uh, syntactical rules too, which are a lot closer to language than the the musical rules would be, but they're not the same as language by any means. Uh, so now you have three sets of syntactical rules that you're learning, and I would propose that those three sets of learnings are mutually uh, reinforcing and complementary. And that if you exclude one, then you're hurting the ability to learn the other two. And it's not just those three, of course. I've just studied dealt with just those three. Right. So I know you had some limitations, and you, you came to a conclusion in your study that you, you warned people against kind of uh, using this as a, a stamp to say, yes, this is the end all, we've got this down. Would you discuss specifically what you would like uh, people to take from the study? Well, it's, it's one study, and as much as those of us who do studies would, would like to think otherwise, uh, in reality, one study is, is not going to really change fundamentally anything. But that said, um, I, I do think this study helps point in a direction that I, I think is healthy for children, and, and I, I think it's healthy for, for music, too, um, which is uh, subject areas are separate domains, and, and each one of these domains involves learning. And by the way, music is, uh, is a product of the mind. It's, it's a set of intellectual contributions to, to human society. It's not just for mood optimization or to uh, to provide background for social events or, or to headbang at concerts and things like that. It, it makes an intellectual contribution, and therefore it's in schools. Um, 
uh, these domains, they're, they're separate, but they also are uh, not separate. They're, they, they have connections at fundamental levels that make them crucial to the ability to learn uh, and, and to teach students how to learn. And uh, therefore, I would caution anyone against thinking that some are more dispensable than others because they're too strongly interconnected at certain levels in the mind. Uh, you either believe that, that students and humans uh, should learn or you don't, but I think most people would say that they think that students and young people should be learning. So implications for educators with this study, and I'm going to give you some individual groups in particular, okay. teachers, administrators, board of education members. Yeah, that's a good question. It seems to me, and this is, this is more true of secondary schools than it is of, of elementary schools, but I think it's becoming increasingly true in elementary schools, too, where uh, teachers are starting to specialize in subject areas. And certainly the, uh, the secondary school is a collection of individuals who are professional specialists in their subject areas. And I think among teachers that tends to place us into, and we do this to ourselves, uh, we, we place ourselves into silos. There's the band director silo, there's the, the history and social studies silo, et cetera, on over the, all around the school. I mean, that you can end up with, with dozens, if, if not scores, of silos. And I think teachers, uh, and I was the same way when I was a school teacher, are not particularly inclined to reach across those subject areas to see what the commonalities might be and, and how we could reinforce one another. And, and I know that involves more meetings and more time, and, and I get that. School teachers don't have a lot of time. And at the building principal level, uh, it, it seems to me, I've never been a principal, and I don't think I would have been a very good one. Uh, I think the job would have eaten me alive. But principals have to deal with a lot of things, and it seems like more and more they have to deal with more and more. And it's, it's difficult for a, a principal, uh, a, a building principal, to see uh, himself or herself as a true academic leader for the building. Uh, mostly becomes uh, a matter of, uh, of custodial and administrative leadership, but not necessarily academic leadership. And then I'm uh, I'm generalizing here. I'm uh, I'm not talking about every principal by any means, but but any principal has to feel the pressure to deal with the uh, the day to day crises first. And I guess in the best of all possible worlds. Uh, it would be great if, if principals would find a way to facilitate uh, facilitate teachers to to get together and to talk about their subject areas among themselves and to to reach some decisions about commonalities and and also uniquenesses. Uh, my advice to school board members is to think very carefully about what you plan to cut. Um, you can't cut off someone's leg and expect to improve them somehow. Uh, and, and you can't just shrug your shoulders and say, well, it uh, has to be done. It's not that simple. That, that's, not your, that's not your position. That's not your function as a member of the school board. Um, to me, to, uh, um, and I've never been a member of a school board either, and I know that you have, Arnold, 
um, it seems to me that the school board has the responsibility to provide the children in in their communities what these children need in order to succeed as uh, school children. And not every uh, school board does that. Uh, most do, I think, but, but but not all the time. And I know that they have pressures uh, on them, too. That, uh, there's nothing philosophical about a dollar. I mean, it's either there or, or it isn't. It's, uh, it, it can't be... Uh, discussed or argued with or anything like that. So I guess that's my answer to your question. Not sure it's a very good answer or or a very uh, new answer. I think it reiterates some things that many in the music profession who are educators, many parents who Mm -hmm. have a musical inclination, either they have um, been in bands or orchestras or choirs, and they realize the importance. And many administrators who also uh, have benefited from those particular kinds of things also realize those things. Is there something that you would say to parents and or children slash students if you had the opportunity to have a meeting with, with them, whether at, at the level that you did uh, research grades three through eight. I think it was three through eight, or four through eight rather. And then the parents of really any student about the importance of music and creating an environment where music is not only appreciated but is an extension into the other areas that you talked about. No, as a parent myself, um, that, that's a that's a good question. I- what what would I like to have heard um, from a music teacher and or or a, a person who who works in that particular field? I guess um, what I'd want to say to parents is that um, there's a fundamental misunderstanding about uh, about musical ability and musical thinking that we all need to get past, which is that. Some have it and some don't. And if you have it, fine. But if you don't, that's fine, too. But in, in reality, um, music, like language and, and math and several other things, is a fundamental mode of human thinking. It's a, it's a fundamental mode of, of human expression. Therefore, everyone is, is musical. Uh, just like everyone is a linguist. Um, that's that's our biological and cultural heritage, and therefore it's incumbent on the school district and and other people too. It doesn't have to be only within the school. Um, it, it, it's incumbent on on society, on on communities, and on schools to develop that part of their of their child's mind, just like it's incumbent on schools to develop other parts of their of their children's minds. Their the mathematical part, the the linguistic part, the the social part, et cetera. So that's what I'd say. I, I would say to them that your child is musical because every human being is musical. It, it, it's part of our biological and cultural heritage. And what would you say to kids? What would you want someone who knows what you know say to your child? Wow. I, my child was an all-state clarinetist, so I, <laughs> I never had to convince her of anything. And her level of talent as a musician was was quite high. Some of that was 
of course, because of the amount of resources we were able to throw at her, private lessons, a good instrument, and so forth. I think he's um, a proud papa. I guess what I'd say to kids, uh, <laughs> I don't think little kids need to have this explained to them. I, I think little kids are quite pleased to express their, their inherent musicality. Um, I think they love it and, and they enjoy doing it. It's when they get a little bit older, say, uh, the, the onset of adolescence, that that I think uh, I think students uh, of adolescence need to be persuaded, if you will, that music does not belong to a select few, and that the way that they approach music, uh, the way they they listen to it, the choices that they make, those are intellectual operations, and they're important intellectual operations. And uh, and therefore they they deserve to be studied, and, and they deserve to be shaped. And by shaped, I don't mean someone should impose should impose choices. Uh, but I think that every uh, person in this society who has an incredible amount of music thrown at them every day should have the skills to discern between quality and and not quality to to understand why they like certain things more than others. And that uh, that's not latent. Those things are active and they're important. And it's an important part of, a, uh, of how a student grows into adulthood. I'm not sure that would reach an adolescent. Adolescents are hard to reach, but I, I don't think that makes it any less true. <laughs> I, I agree with that because executive oh, yeah. function hasn't kicked in yet to no. realize those things. <laughs> no, that... <laughs> it all hasn't. If it has, they they have these buzzing things happening inside of them that, yeah. that drown everything else out. Yeah, yeah. It it takes a while for all those wires to come together in their head. <laughs> After it just takes years. There's just nothing, no way around that. It's our fo- obligation as adults to to try to help them to. Hmm. to understand the world that they live in. Good point. I'm not sure we always do a very good job of that. Very good point. Well, and I think one of the struggles uh, in high schools at this time and how academic standards are being pressed, and I understand that, that many students have to make some tough choices and decisions Mm -hmm. about their coursework, which either takes them into a path of the arts, uh, music, or keeps them out of it. And mm-hmm. those are some real difficult choices and decisions that kids and parents have to make that have some long-term uh, consequences. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the schools themselves and the school districts themselves are forcing some of those decisions when they don't need to. Absolutely. I, there, there are students uh, at, at uh, my daughter's high school, uh, who were all state performers at, uh, as well, who uh, did all kinds of things. Uh, they, they went to MIT and Stanford and places like that. They, they were not forced to give up something uh, for something else, something that they valued and were good at. Um, and I, I don't think that that's necessary. I, I, I think that's, that's an imposition. I, I don't think it's a choice that students... Um, necessarily, or families necessarily want to make. I agree with you. And it's a situation that's unfortunate many times uh, when paths have to be drawn like that and decisions have to be made like that. And schools and districts kind of force that uh, one way or the other, Mm -hmm. that we're not developing 
the total student, as you were talking about, the community is not really developing that one way or the mm-hmm. other. I think your key word is that th- these are decisions. that They're not inevitabilities. They're decisions that, that people make. And I would say that some of the decisions are not made uh, for economic reasons. I would say some of the decisions uh, reflect values. Which is a whole nother study. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, and not one I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> the, the value of music instruction in, in schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a whole nother study. Martin, I appreciate you get, coming on the show today and talking about this. I, I When I saw this... In an email that I received, I was like, holy smokes, Uh, number one, I know this guy. Number two, this is a very interesting study, and the fact that you were surprised at the results was number three. Hmm. And I thought, this is something that we need to talk about and have people hear, and maybe they can do some further investigation on their own and bring this information to people uh, who are in positions that make some decisions that impact kids on a daily basis. And I'm glad you said the things you said uh, to board members and to administrators and teachers. I, I thought those were extremely important. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I hope that I did okay um, articulating this, this sort of thing to an audience. I'm sorry to say is not something that I do as often as I should. Well, you, you did a great job, and uh, I, again, I greatly appreciate you being on. We've been talking to Martin Burgey, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor of Music Education and Music Therapy at the University of Kansas, discussing his research study, Multi-Level Models of the Relationship Between Music Achievement and Reading and Math Achievement that can be found in the National Association for Music Education Journal. Martin, thanks again for being on St. Louis and June. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We are happy you listened to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Keep up to date and sign up on our mailing list. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH and St. Louis in Tune.